Hello. This is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome everyone to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm excited to talk to Sarah Salter Kelly today. She is a talented writer, healer, and speaker. She utilizes the raw, compounded teachings of her life experience to uplift, empower, and guide others. Her wisdom is authentic, embodied, and hard-won, generated through years of integrating the tragic homicide of her mother and learning to forgive the perpetrator. Alongside 30 years of studying personal growth, mysticism, restorative justice, and earth-based healing traditions, over the past 14 years, she's run a private healing practice, facilitated retreats in Canada and in Peru, taught trauma-focused and shamanic healing workshops, and presented at conferences and public events. She's a mother, a wife, and a lover of organic gardening, as well as an avid outdoor enthusiast. Her spare time is spent exploring the edges of the wild for solace, connection, and the challenge of physical endurance. Welcome, Sarah. Good morning, Michael. It's so great to be on your show here today. I'm really looking forward to it. We have a lot of similarities in our path to healing trauma. So um, you have a new book out called Trauma as Medicine, and I'm excited to talk about that. But before we get really into the book, let's talk about the loss of your mother and how that led you to your spiritual path and doing this kind of trauma work. Absolutely. Um, The loss of my mother was the main impetus that led me, I think, to be so willing to be seen in my pain and in my trauma and share my story. And in some ways, Michael, it's because she was a life coach before coaching was cool, before anyone knew about it, you know, back in the mid 80s. So I grew up in this household where recognizing that we are co-creators of our reality was just common table talk. You know, I, I remember my mom telling me this story when I was about 10 about Louise Hay, who healed herself of cervical cancer. And I was 10, so I didn't know what a cervix was, but I could tell how excited my mom was that this was like amazing, we could heal ourselves. And so that was some of the, the foundation that led into who I was at 20 years old when my mother was brutally murdered. So I already had this idea that I had life figured out. I had a healthy spiritual practice. I'd discovered in my teens that there was such thing as real witches that were good. And I thought I knew there should be. And um, I had a, a great partner. I worked at a cool job in a music store. So, you know, I, as many 20 year olds do, um, I thought I had everything figured out and then my life was turned upside down. So my mother was attacked in a ground level parkade. She would have, it only fit about 10 cars. She would have gone in to go to work and the perpetrator was waiting in the parkade and she was attacked, raped. 
Her body was put into the back of her car and thrown into an abandoned farmhouse about an hour out of Edmonton, Alberta. But we didn't know what had happened to her for 11 days. So what I would say when I reflect back on that time period, which is easy for me to talk about now because I speak about it so much, but it took a long time to be able to talk about it and um, digest and process it. It's almost like each time you talk about something, it's another way of metabolizing, another way of assimilating and, um, and letting go. Uh, the person who was responsible was caught and found guilty of murder one in April of 1997. So after he was found guilty, Michael, he suicided in prison. I think that, you know, at, at that time period, there's two things I noticed for me with homicide, and I think it's different for everybody, is that grieving the loss of a person almost was a separate thing from the circumstances. It's like there was two things to, you know, that needed to be addressed. And for me, after the trial, I felt like I could then address the grief because I didn't have to go through the, um, how excruciating it is to be in the media and to be wondering what will happen and all of the rigors that is involved with a court process. So after that felt complete, um, for lack of a better term, because it never feels complete, uh, then I could go deep into whatever was needed for grieving. And for me, that was, I had this great um, desire for freedom. I think it's one of my core values. And so any of the emotions that I felt were stuck inside of me, uh, even at that young of an age, I was able to recognize that how important it was to find a means to let them go. So I noticed that our culture doesn't have a lot of space for people to be in grief. <laughs> you know, um, I, I left the job that I was at so that I would have more time to be with my grief and worked at different part-time jobs throughout my um, early 20s, really dedicating myself to letting what needed to move, move, right? And to doing some of that deeper less listening. And I think that in time, I uh, became inspired to learn how to share with others as I integrated and embodied what I was learning, right? This was you know, in December of 1995, that she was murdered. And um, maybe once upon a time, I thought I had it figured out. And what I notice more and more as I get older is that I'm still learning and figuring and, um, <laughs> you know, and it comes through bit by bit. And that is the energy that went into writing trauma as medicine is it's taking those details of 25 years and that self-inquiry and curiosity of, oh, I have this feeling here. I have this fear. What power exists inside of me to address this fear? How can I make a decision to not be bound by this fear anymore? And, and how can I practice that? And what would it look like, right? And I often found when I was um, determining this for myself through the years is that I couldn't find any information anywhere about trauma. And again, this is in the late 90s and in the early 2000s. And I, I only had either no internet or dial up internet. Um, and besides what would I look up, like how to address your mother's perpetrator, how to 
reconcile with brutality. Like there, I didn't, I couldn't figure that out, you know, or find an external solution to what I internally knew I had to address. At one point I had gone to see a, a psychologist after mom had been dead for about 10 years and I could feel the spirit of her perpetrator around me. And I knew that I needed to somehow address this. And yet the um, tools that the psychologist offered me was to either imagine him being enveloped in a pink light or see him floating away from me. And I remember thinking like, I could have got that for free from a lot of my woo-woo friends. <laughs> I was looking for some tools. And, and at that point, I was inspired to create my own ceremony, recognizing that I needed to speak to him because he had suicided in prison. I didn't have a way to speak to him other than doing it energetically. I didn't necessarily know that if I called him in, he would come. Right. I was I just knew that I needed to create a sacred container and sacred space for me to speak to this man and address my sense of victimization, get my anger out, um, tell the, the truth directly to him of what it meant to me. And this was the experience that changed my life, Michael, because this ceremony I practiced once a week over the course of nine months. And I hadn't planned it at the time that it would take nine months. I just knew that it was time for me to try a different tactic. If I kept trying to push him away and push away that whether it was the image of his face or the fear that it brought up inside of me, um, I was using all of this energy to resist that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, what happens if instead I pull him in, you know, and and I was also applying some of my ideas of how to live as a sustainable human being, right? I don't believe there's such thing as garbage. We need to figure out how to compost or recycle. And I thought, well, if I'm, I'm trying to push this away as if it doesn't mean anything, as if it's garbage, this image of my mother's perpetrator in my mind. What if there's a different answer and I don't have that answer, but I can find out by expressing what I actually feel and think directly towards him. So important. You know, here's, I just have to have to do, um, tell you what it's like to be with you, which is, <laughs> which is delightful. But what's really significant is that you're very present. Mm -hmm. And with trauma, I work with a lot of people like you do with trauma, there's an absencing. There's a uh, dissociated part which takes part of people's essence away. And of course, the work that we're doing is about integrating trauma. How do we integrate this frozen past? You know, something in us has not been experienced. So it still lives in our body as an undigested memory, but not integrated into our body. It's right. like a frozen part. And so when I'm with you, it's so delightful. You talk about it, but I'm not left with any residue about it. People have really a hard time being with trauma. Other people, you know, you know, my wife was also murdered. One of my mm -hmm. many traumas. I didn't quite have the secure attachment that you had at the beginning to do the work, but the person 
who had done it, and it was a very similar situation to what you're talking about, the person who had done it that they thought had done it was, you know, the trial went on and and he wasn't found guilty. Hmm. Well, that's been a long process for me. And that was 40 years ago. And about eight months ago, 40 years after it happened, I got a call from the police in Carmel, California, saying we're reopening the case. Of course, that brought up a lot of stuff that I had worked on, but it definitely still, there was a lot there because there was no sense of completion in it either. Yeah. Uh, I, I had done a lot of ritual, a lot of work around it and a lot of work on other earlier traumas that I had. But over the last eight months, they got uh, a warrant and they got a DNA sample. Of course, they didn't have DNA at that time. And it was a match. And then they arrested him. And so in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be at the hearing to set the trial after 40 years. And but where I have gotten to is a lot of compassion for him in that. So even without having closure, I was able to integrate a lot and see this person who now, you know, is in his mid sixties and has a family and uh, everything like that. So it's going to be really interesting to be at the trial. But the point I was making was about your presence with it. And I think, you know, for our listeners, it's so important to be able to talk about trauma, which you mentioned in the beginning. And I wanted you to to expand on that. And the other thing I wanted you to expand on was the, you said the decision not to be bound by the the Mm -hmm. trauma. That's, that's really an important piece of that kind of talking about healing and then leading into, you know, the kind of ceremony and the kind of work where you can integrate that frozen part of our past. So maybe you can take from that and and share your thoughts. Yeah. Speaking to the decision part, you mentioned secure attachment, Michael, and we spoke a little bit before our our call now before our interview um, about how much some of that early attachment is important for our own um, personal growth and psychological development. And so in many ways, I was blessed with a really good attachment at an early time period. So I was conscious that how I addressed my own pain or suffering was my choice. So that was already put into me. And, and sure enough, for all of us, as we grow up, we, we have our, our inner rebel that rebel, rebels against anything that we've been taught. And I very much had that because I actually left home at 15. So I was a pretty diehard punk kid who was going to prove that I could do everything myself. However, I went from living in a you know suburb type of upbringing to the downtown core and many precarious situations where I got to practice that I get to make those decisions, (laughs) you know, and I got to recognize the cause and effect of it. And so when we're referencing that in regards to trauma, it was quite evident that I got to choose whether or not what I dealt with, I got to choose how I dealt with it. I got to pick that. I couldn't change what happened. I was totally powerless to change what happened. That was out of my control. And 
And so I could choose if I accepted that, you know, if I accepted that random things, horrible things can happen to people that we love and that, and that I had no power to do anything about that, but I could choose what I did with who I was now and how that was impacting me. So when we think about um, the feeling, if we go into our felt sense and what that's like when we bring a certain trauma into our awareness, um, particularly if we haven't spoken about it much. When I think back to the earlier years, I would feel it in my face, like a, a dripping of shame almost. And even though it was my mother who was murdered, um, I would feel ashamed to speak to it or bring it up because there's nothing like homicide for a conversation stopper, you know, right? You know what I'm talking about. I remember once, Michael, someone asked me, maybe it was six years after she died and I lied. I said, cancer. And, um, and I felt so guilty and I could feel her spirit just, you know, kind of admonishing me and you need to tell the truth. Right. But I, I wasn't ready to be seen in it and being seen in it by speaking it, speaking the truth is one of the first ways that we start to initiate that freedom. It, it helps us to feel held by whoever it is that's listening or witnessing, or it also helps us to recognize the people that aren't holding us because when we share it, they're not really listening or witnessing. That's so huge. I, I, I just want to put an exclamation point to people who are dealing with people who have had big trauma. I mean, this, everybody has trauma, little t, but big trauma is a little different. And I remember vividly the response and the look, you know, I had someone call me and, and said, how's Sonia doing? And I said, well, she was murdered. And the response was, you're kidding. Now, mm. how would anybody say something like that <laughs> that would be kidding? But it was the person's inability to be with that. And, and I think that's true for many people. It's just like yeah. you said, it's a, it's a conversation stopper. But to open your heart to people who have had the, big, the bigger traumas is, mm -hmm. gives you an opportunity to heal that wounding which causes you to react in that way. Totally. Yeah. And, and that is such an important piece. I also remember sharing with a few of my friends, you know, I was 20 when she was murdered. So there weren't a lot of friends my age that could be with the intensity of that. Right. Um, but I remember telling uh, somebody after about a year or two, that I needed to talk about it more. I remember saying, I need you to ask me about this. This is important. And she started crying and telling me it was too painful for her. And, and so it's, it, there's that, that place where, you know, people don't know what to do. And I remember taking that on at the time and I ended up comforting her. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, but we do, we need to be seen and witnessed and, and it is uncomfortable. Life's uncomfortable. There's uncomfortable things. And if we can't find a way to be with them, we're stuck, all of us, individually and collectively. We're, we're going to be in a mess. <laughs> we are in a mess. We and are. A lot of it is born in that trauma that has us be uncomfortable to be authentic. Yeah. Uh, because if we have a choice between, between choosing attachment and belonging versus authenticity, we're going to go towards attachment and belonging every time. Yeah. 
but yeah. to recognize that and to move in the direction of authenticity is how we heal our own trauma because we, we live in a sea of trauma, but yeah. personal, ancestral, collective. And right now it's being played out on the world stage. That trauma is not something new that's happening with Russia and Ukraine. That's mm-hmm. been going on for uh, hundreds of years, if not more. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the, the piece that's coming up for me, Michael, because I've, um, it's, it's just been present since I put the book out, is realizing that being seen in it means that we also are going to deviate away from just the, the best example for me to use is that my family has a different approach than I do for healing trauma. And, and for some of them, it's not talking about it, <laughs> you know, and there's definitely not a willingness to go into the deep dark in the same way that's really important for me. So for some time, I would censor what I said or what I wrote or how I went about it out of a desire for that attachment and belonging. I want to belong to my family or out of that loyalty. So thinking about it in reflection of what you just said, to choose authenticity and to choose our own expression and our own embodiment means that we have to create that attachment and belonging inside of ourselves and not be looking to the external variable to validate it or justify it. The other part of that is since we are deeply interconnected and interdependent with everyone, nature and everyone else, if there's enough safety in our being with other people, and sharing it. And, and that's what I was really calling towards your ability to be present and be safe from working with people. And I think I've developed some of that capacity also. Then people can at least feel the numbness or the tension in their own body, which is not coming from outside somebody sharing their story. It's coming from their trauma that has not been integrated yet. And I think yes. that's really important for people, you know, if they meet someone with trauma and they want to shut down, that's a time to look and say, where am I numb in my body? Where is there tension in my body? Yeah. What is it that's coming up for me that I don't want to see right now? And yes. that can be a real healing for people that haven't had the big T's, but have the low T's, the uh, personal and familial and ancestral trauma that is in our blood, our bones, and our breath. Yeah, and it gives somebody the means in which they can feel and acknowledge what's real for them. I think that's the important piece too, is that if you're turning that uh, attention inwards and acknowledging, well, actually, if that's in your body, if that's your response to this particular story or this particular issue, then it's, then it's yours. <laughs> And if it's yours, the beautiful part is that you can do something with it. I think so often we feel victimized by external circumstances, right? And that comes from us refusing to take ownership. And if we actually go, okay, well, I'm a part of this, whether it's I'm carrying something collective, whether it's I'm carrying something um, environmental or through my ancestral lines, it's in me so I can address it. And, And it matters enough to be addressed. Yeah, let's deepen the conversation around trauma as medicine, uh, which is the name of your book. Wonderful book and a lot in there. 
So we've kind of touched on it, but the whole idea of healing, what is healing and what is medicine of the medicine of trauma and the ability to be with that medicine and integrate that trauma. Can you talk a little bit about question, Michael? I think it starts with to use something you just said, it starts with being able to be with it. Mm -hmm. And that that medicine that's generated is different for every person. And it's also not, it's not necessarily a tangible thing where we can say, here's the thing that I got from healing my trauma and check off a box and I'm done, call it a day. (laughs) It's more of a way of living that that with this, if if we make a decision, There's that saying again, within ourselves, that there is value, there's purpose, there's medicine inside of our trauma. If we make that decision in our body, then the universe starts to bring us all of the elements that we need in order to cultivate that experience. And so we start to recognize, okay, what have I still not addressed? Because it's going to come up inside of us. And if we pose that inquiry, what have I still not metabolized? We'll feel it in our body. I noticed a lot of grief or trauma for myself or through my clients through the years hangs out in the belly. And if we start to question, what is it that I could assimilate from this um, experience? And we even think of it as the metabolization process. What could I assimilate? What has it actually brought into my life? And what shit am I holding on to that I need to let go of? What is the waste of it? You know, the, the anger, the need for vengeance, the, the rage, like all of that stuff needs to be felt and expressed. But there comes a time where we need to ask ourselves, how long are we holding on to it? And we're the only ones who can gauge that for ourselves. There isn't a, you can't generalize it for all of us, but we must determine is this healthy for me? And, and what happens if I surrender and let go of some of this shit? So one of the things I was just going to add to that, that we have to let go of is the victim stance. Yeah. You know, that life is doing it to me, that this person is causing my upset, my anger. Anytime we have an upset, we have, we, we say, I had a difficult conversation or it was really hard at work today. Well, what's underneath those words is always trauma. Yeah. Whether it's big or little trauma, it's a place where there are parts that have not been, parts of our past that have not been integrated, or as you say, metabolized. They haven't been brought in because we've pushed them down. It takes a lot of energy to hold that trauma down. And if you have a number of them, it's like pushing a beach ball in the water. You got both arms and both feet pushing them down and it takes our life force. And, and one of the symptoms, many symptoms of trauma is exhaustion. Yeah. Because we're often in fight or flight mode and running because scarcity and lack and Mm -hmm. separation and moving fast are all trauma symptoms. Definitely. I mean, I think we have this idea that it'll be too much, right? Because people are in such a state of exhaustion. It's like, oh, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll address it when I have time. I'll address it when, and then years go by, right? Years go by. And so it's, it's really making ourselves a priority and making our own um, emotional body a priority and our own, the integrity of who we are a priority in our lives. 
which it's not an ego us- trip either. It's not like an identification because when I do that for myself, I have way more compassion, empathy, yeah. understanding for other people. But we mm-hmm. won't, we, you know, we hold on to it because it's scary. But when we open to it, we open not just to ourselves, but to the world. Yeah, we absolutely do. And, and that's what, that was one of the, you know, when we speak to the medicine aspect in trauma as medicine and what inspired me so much to need to share it. I would, what I'd like to speak to here, Michael, would be a little bit about my mom's perpetrator and how that journey of reconciliation came forward. And so, you know, I hadn't given any thought to forgiveness at all in the first 10 years. It hadn't even occurred to me. In many ways, it would have felt like even to think about it would be disloyal to my mother. I had to ensure that I really moved through my grief before I even thought about that. And then at the 10 year mark, I could feel her perpetrator around me all of the time. And that's when I decided to create my own ceremony where I address the victim feelings. Because until that point, I refused to even say I was victimized. So that's one of the things that it's, we don't want to get stuck in seeing the world from the point of view of a victim, but we need to acknowledge when we've had experiences where we didn't have any control and tell the truth about that. And so in this ceremony of addressing her perpetrator, which there was no, no plant medicine used in the ceremony. It was just very much, how do I create a space to say my feelings, to name what's important and to allow for whatever else has to happen to come through. And I did this over the course of nine months, you know, maybe once a week for about an hour or so I had a six month old son who was napping and my twins were in kindergarten. And to me, I was like, wow, I got time (laughs) (laughs) and I'm going to make use of it. And, and I often bring that up when I'm teaching because people will have this idea. They don't have time. We always have time when it's important. And it was through that process that I had an experience of compassion that I wasn't expecting. You know, I was expressing anger and I was expressing the deep, dark rage. And yet simultaneously, I had this vision of compassion. And I really struggled with that initially because I was doing this ceremony to get mad. And then here's this experience of compassion. And yet I couldn't deny the truth that both were inside of my body. There was anger and there was compassion. And the anger still took a little bit of time to be expressed. But the compassion sparked a seed in me where I started to be curious about who this guy was other than a bad guy. I knew that he had grown up in the system. He was First Nations from Saddle Lake Reserve in Alberta. And I didn't know a lot beyond that. But it started to occur to me that this guy was somebody other than a murderer. You know, he had been out of jail for only five days, about five days before my mom was murdered. However, he was also someone's brother, someone's son. And that curiosity took time. It wasn't something that just showed up overnight. It it took a couple of years of me being curious and inspired me at one point into contacting the, the, it's called the, in Alberta, it would have been the chief and council of the place that he was from and to just say a little bit about myself and that I was curious about this person and I wanted to know more about where he came from. And so the beautiful thing about that in my own journey of making medicine is I was hooked up with a former chief, Eric Large, 
who invited me to the reserve where he taught me a lot about the history of colonization and then actually invited me to come and do trauma as medicine story shares at many different events through the years. And so that became a, a, you know, started in 2010 and became this really big experience of understanding the history of colonization in Canada and starting to look at the bigger picture. I was able to move a little bit beyond the personal experience of healing and into the collective to start to wonder, okay, well, why was this guy hanging out in the parkade that day? You know, somebody doesn't just wake up one day and become a murderer. There's a series of events that come into place if somebody gets that idea in their head that they're going to create such a degrading act towards another human being. And so that curiosity became such a big part of my healing as well and has brought untold wealth into my own soul and spirit, Michael. Like through time, I've actually come to know his sister, so the perpetrator's sister, and we have done talks together um, which on re- reconciliation and healing trauma. And anytime I sit with her and hear her stories of trauma and, you know, we'll answer questions in group about anything from white privilege to forgiveness to, you know, just being with very, very big differences and different places that we came from and yet holding space for anybody present to go into those uncomfortable spaces within themselves. And so there has been so many profound gifts in being willing to go into it. And so that's what I, the intention in creating trauma as medicine is to create this potential journey for the reader of how can you go into what it feels possible. Yeah. And so that's the intention is what if step-by-step we can go into this hard stuff um, without attaching to the outcome, just following our intuition and following however spirit is leading us. Ah, I just want to take in, and I hope our listeners will too, the power and the magic and the what it takes to feel that kind of reconciliation. You know, I think the greatest, greatest event of the 20th century, lots of people have lots of ideas of the 20th century. What was the greatest event? To me, it was the truth and reconciliation in South Africa, that that, that practice. And, you know, I hear it right now with people blaming the Russians. The Russian people are really having a hard time. There's a person who, if you looked at his history, you could see how he got to the place that, he, that he's in and how that's in the culture. But there's a lot of hatred and anger and, and you're going back there and then seeing this was a product of the residential schools. This was oh a God. product of being in an abusive, alcoholic, drug community all these things. And that's not to to justify their actions. Or I think that's important. People say, well, we need to remember, you know, and, and, and that's part of our soul that we're giving up when we say we have to be angry. We have to hold on to that because it kills us. Yeah. Yeah. Resentment. There's nothing that kills us faster than resentment. If we carry resentment, it's like having hot coals and throwing it at someone. You're, you may or may not hit the other person, but you're sure going to burn your hand. And yeah. to me, that's the resentment that I've worked very hard with so much trauma in my life to work with that and recognize, oh, wait a minute. That's because I actually don't want to feel 
the feelings that are kind of nasty and ugly. And so I, I love what you're saying. Well, and that very truth, right, that we have to reckon with is that, you know, people do horrible things. This happens. And thinking about what you were saying in context with um, Russia right now, too, I thought the same thing um, and how vilified all Russians are becoming at this moment. And that's not the answer. Like we're in that if we're going to come into a place of unity, we need to find a different way, (laughs) you know, and that's not doing that generalization of vilifying all Russians as the the bad guy at this time period. I'm doing these weekly uh, peace meditations I've been doing since the start. So this will be the third one this week. And, um, and one of the things that in the talk before the meditation, I was saying, do you know that there's over 40, 40 wars going on right now? Mm-hmm. In on the on this planet, there's more than 40 wars, we're focused on one. And it's very interesting. It's white European. And one of the things that really shocked me was in trying to get the Ukrainians on buses to get out of harm's way. There were a bunch of African people that they refused to let on the buses to get out. Yeah. No. Yes. It's, uh, I, I saw a couple of videos, not just one instance of that but you're not Ukrainian. So you've got to stay here. You've been mm. working here in this country, but you've got to stay here. Mm. And that's the kind of ignorance that keeps us having these wars. Exactly. And, exactly. you know, I, I don't want to get too political about this, but I'm really passionate about, you know, this peace project that I'm working on right now. And, and all of the immigration that's happening to get people out of Ukraine But what about the people from Syria, from Afghanistan, that were left in boats to drown because they weren't welcome? I mean, this this is an atrocity. And we need to feel the depth of our humanity, how big this is. Yeah. And even what's still happening there. I was, you know, trying to find some more information a few weeks ago. Uh, as well about some of the other wars happening in the world because that's something that I had thought of it's like we're zeroing in on this one particular not to diminish the experience at all for people who are experiencing it and what's happened with Syria and what's happened with Afghanistan and where is each of our own power right what can we do that's viable and a huge piece of that is the is peace meditation is reconciling our own stuff. Yeah. Right. Like we need to do our own work and it's so easy for us to get caught up in the literal wounds of the world and not taking ownership for what it's poking inside of us so that we're addressing some of our own real, you know, big T's or small T traumas. And And small T's are not so small. They're not so small. No, (laughs) they're not so uh, small. I think think it would be good to talk about that a little bit you know of course i have a a a big big t example of that but the whole idea of from in utero to early child development and the first six or seven years makes the difference of 
what kind of personality we're going to have to be able to cope with. If we had a secure attack, what's called a secure attachment, I'm not going to get into all the types, but if we had a secure attachment, then we have more power to deal with these trauma events that are happening, both personally, communal, and global kind of traumas. But that phase means that we need to be felt, seen, and heard as a mammal, that's what's important is we're fed, we're felt, we're loved, we're soothed, we're seen. All of that is what gives us the basis to deal with trauma or gives us trauma, which could build into more and more trauma and a life of trauma. So of course I'm passionate about it because it is, you know, in many ways, besides the paper, it's my credentials that I've been able Mm -hmm. to do that work. And so I feel like doing that, as you say, the shadow work, I call it the shadow work, those places that are suppressed and and unseen, but shape our personality. I think too, just as I listen to you, one of the, one of the biggest things I think that comes up for people is the, the fear piece, right? I think that if we don't find the courage to speak fear that's also what keeps us entrapped again, big T or small T it's the, you know, the fear of what happens if I feel it, what happens if I'm different, what happens if I'm rejected by sharing it, what happens if, you know, it's, it's, it's just as painful now as it was then. Like there's all of these fears around the what if, and I think for even any individual listening, if we give ourselves permission to unpack them one by one, that we never have to go into it all at once. However, it's recognizing that there is fear there. Like we need to start with that. I'm afraid, right? And the last couple of years have been really great for all of us in examining our own inner sensations around belonging and around attachment and around being with discomfort. And so even noticing the fears that came up in the last couple of years and being curious if they relate to any unresolved trauma from the past. Like that. And the othering that has happened. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Vaccinated, the not vaccinated, the all the different laws and things and what's Mm -hmm. happened to the judicial system. All of that is really important. Want to make sure both of us are shamanic practitioners, part of our practice, somatic healing, but I want to make sure that we talk about the the medicine path and Mm -hmm. what's entailed with that, the the slowing down and the connection with the animistic connection to life and to nature and how we've separated ourselves and how coming back and really building ceremony. So maybe you can talk about the medicine path. I think it's important that people have a sense there's, because talk- I would love to. I I just want to say, if you're dealing with trauma, talk radio psychiatry or psychology is not going to do much because you can't change your mind with your mind. You've got to go to the body. You've so, got to go into your body. Yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I've often thought through the years, Michael, that the be, being connected with the pagan tradition. So the, you know, the reclaiming tradition that was birthed from Starhawk uh, had such a foundation for me in realizing that the world around me was alive and that I could communicate with it. And so there was a way for me to action my prayers. Ceremony to me is creating an action for my prayers to land somewhere in this magnificent mystery that is the world around us. And so that's 
you know, the engagement with the mystical through going outside into nature, bringing forth questioning and inquiry in my own heart and taking time to listen to response. And that's often something I used to teach a shaman's path two year program. And I've done trauma as medicine retreats through the years. And they're always in a location where we can be outside in nature so that each individual or participant can have their own direct revelation. And that's what's so important in a medicine path is that you are learning to recognize that you may be your own conduit for connection with the divine, the divine of this land, the divine that is inside of you, the, the Pachamama, the mother earth and everything that we're related to. You can communicate with that. And when we let ourselves feel seen and held and heard in that sacred container of living energy, then we begin to recognize that we don't need external validation from the other humans or systems to necessarily say, yes, you can heal this or, or no, you can't, whatever it is that's coming up for us. We can go inwards to find those answers. So I think the medicine path is such a predominant way for us to trust in ourselves, our own capacity for resilience and to be that conduit for energy, for living energy. Another piece that I will often share when I'm teaching is that we're, if we're going for a walk in the forest or the woods and we look around us and we're going to see deadfall and we're going to see moss growing and we're going to see the mycelium and, and all of the plants that make the forest this incredible, brilliant, sacred space. And we don't look at any of the trees that maybe got cracked by lightning and fell down as ugly or we don't look at them and think they don't belong. We recognize that they're a part of the whole sacred living system. And if we begin to look at ourselves that way, that everything in us is part of that sacred system. So the places we've been struck by lightning and feel cracked and broken, those are actually part of the regenerative elements of our own life experience. And so that's what a medicine path helps us with, to realize that everything that we have, we don't have to get rid of everything, anything at all. You know, it's perfect right here. This moment right here now is exactly the one that you need. And when we tune into that, we feel that deeper connection to the sacred as a lived experience. So we're seeking that lived experience and the whether it's, you know, creating your own fire ceremony, you know, whatever the practice is for you that feels like a way to connect. I like to use a lot of sound tools or drums in order to help generate an altered state that allows for that deepening and that um, letting go of the mind and more connection to the body. Yeah, it's so, so powerful what you're saying. When we're talking about the mystery, we're also talking about letting go of control. One of the essential things is we want to have control. We want, so we, so we aren't blindsided really to, you know, this whole idea of giving up to the higher power, the mystery, the essence of life, life wants to live. It's been doing it for millions of years, you know, and it wants to live through us. It's not separate, you know, but if we're trying to control it, life doesn't get to live through it. So that's the first part I wanted to say. And the other part was the importance, and this is a big part of the shamanic traditions, is intention. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the importance of intention. 
Yeah, I would love to speak to that. The first thing that I laid down as a foundation in my ceremony with my mother's perpetrator was my intention for freedom. So I didn't know what it was going to look like, Michael. I just knew I needed to be free. And in each ceremony, week by week, over the course of nine months, whatever came up somehow was going to be connected to that freedom. And I trusted that implicitly. And so when that, when that meant that I had this one vision of compassion, even though it pissed me off initially, I had to surrender and trust because I had set that intention for freedom. And freedom meant I had to start exploring his humanity and freedom meant I had to go into the really uncomfortable places. You know, I sat down at the kitchen table with Marilyn Bright Eyes, who is the sister of my mother's perpetrator. This was maybe in 2013, I think. And so we're having tea. I, I was teaching a talk at the Blue Quills culture camp and she invited me over afterwards. And we're going through family pictures in her photo album. And all of a sudden she flips a page and there's my mom's perpetrator, you know, obviously looking different than he did at the trial and different than he did in the newspaper photo that was shown again and again. And I can't lie. My heart stopped for a moment. I couldn't breathe. I went totally froze and went, Oh my God, why am I here? Oh my God, I can't do this. This is way too much. Why am I here? And I had to breathe through it and tune into that intention for freedom. You know, I want to be free. I need to know who this guy was. I need to know how somehow me knowing that honors my mother's legacy and and honors this possibility to create peace within ourselves. And so if we want to create peace within ourselves, if there's a good chance that we're going to look at all the places that we don't feel peaceful. And so that's my best way to speak to intention is that if we're holding the higher regard for intention, then we have to trust that what comes is related to that intention. Whereas often I've seen people in classes, they'll be like, well, I wanted to explore self-love and all I'm feeling is judgment. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, perfect. Let's look at the judgment, you know? Yay. Let's look at the hard stuff. That is the point. You know, that's the, yeah, that is the way in. And something else that makes me think of too, is that we have this idea that some of the new ageisms can be a a spiritual bypass. So some of the new ageisms I'd speak to would be, you know, there's no accidents. Everything happens for a reason. We choose everything to name a few, right? And they're definitely not something you want somebody to say to you right in acute phase of trauma, right? You know, I would have punched somebody in the face if they said that to me. (laughs) But however, through time, this comes back to the decision that we make inside of ourselves. We can be curious. We can, we can say, okay, if everything happens for a reason, what would the reason be? How can, you know, that's, a, that's the same as saying, how can I find purpose in this? And when we find purpose and meaning in our hardship, we gain such a sense of self-confidence and power that that is a game changer for ourselves. I think, I think the thing that's important in medicine healing is to know that the medicine is in the pain. Yeah. It's not somewhere else. You talk about spiritual bypass. There's so much of it going on, but the medicine is in the pain. And from people, you know, when I work with people, what I see often is that the pain of not feeling the pain is more painful than feeling the pain itself. 
Yeah. You know, to actually go in. I mean, you have to do it. You titrate it. You go it slow. You do a little yeah. bit at a time and access it. But to bring it back to you use the term felt sense, it's, you know, a term I use a lot is what's happening in your body, what's happening in your emotions, where are they, you know, so to be able to really feel it, we think we feel it in the mind, we don't feel in the mind, we feel in the body. And I think that's essential for people who are dealing with trauma and trauma response to recognize, okay, if I can just stay with this pain a little bit longer and allow myself to feel my body and mm -hmm. to notice the emotions that come up. And very likely if I stay with it long enough, there will be a story or there won't. I mean, there's implicit and explicit trauma, you know, some of the very young trauma, you won't have it, but you'll feel the energy and the emotion of it. And I think that's really crucial for people that are wanting to engage in this trauma work, which is so important right now because of the collective trauma. Because when I'm working with my own trauma, this is not like I'm, I'm getting a bigger ego. This is like I'm dissolving the things that keep me separate from other people. Absolutely. And I think that the deeper that we go inwards, the more there's that releasing of our ego and a deeper sense of compassion and shared humanity and that can only be experienced by going into the hard stuff right and to know that we're going to go in and that's often that something i'll say to my clients is that i will be helping you to go in and feel the hard stuff and if you're working with me that is what i help you do we're not going to go around it we're not going to go you know spend all our time under it we're going to go into it and so you know, that that is what I find to be the most direct method of discovering our medicine is that willingness to go in. Yeah. If somebody asked me, what's your job, you know, when you're dealing with people with trauma, I would say basically one, well, two things, maybe one is to create a safe space so someone can feel safe enough to feel. And the other is to be a space of love to hold that with them. Like in the shamanic work we do, I, I go in there with them. I'm going to work with my tools to mm -hmm. be with them and to be an ally. But the first thing is really, they have to feel safe. So yeah. And that safety is the first absolutely foundational. And then to recognize that you get to determine what you need to feel safe. Yeah. Right. And call it, bring it with you. You know, so even starting that dialogue, okay, well, if you were safe, what would that be like? Because that's often the, the, the very initial piece. Don't you notice that realizing that for some people, maybe they've never felt safe yeah. in their whole life. Yeah. For many people. I, yeah. I, in my, in my classes, I always say, I want you to feel safe enough to feel just a little bit unsafe <laughs> because I we like got to feel a little I bit unsafe in order to do that work, but we need a safe container to do it in. Yeah, that is, that's so important. And that is the piece, right? So that we come up against the edge of whatever that restrictive fear energy is that surrounds somebody's energy body and start to, you know, push a little, start to go, oh, okay, I'm curious about this piece here. What's it related to? How do I give myself permission to be a little bit bigger, a little bit brighter? 
Exactly. Well, Sarah Salter, Kelly, I am just loving our conversation. I wish we had another hour. We'll have to do another one, but I want to plug your book, Trauma as Medicine, a beautiful book and lots of journeys in there, lots of wisdom in there, hard-won wisdom. I'm so grateful to you to take the time to be on We Earth Radio and to share with you. Thank you, Michael. Um, I have, do I have to, can I read one paragraph for people before we close? Okay, let's do it. All right, everybody. This is from the introduction. Once upon a time, long, long ago, so long ago, in fact, that even the oldest of our grandmothers and grandfathers, grandmothers and grandfathers cannot remember, there existed a time and a community that honored and celebrated our deepest wounds as the passage of our soul's evolution. They knew that the initiation into higher learning came from fully embodying the energy of pain until it transformed into something inconceivable, something beyond the scope of the mind and into the wisdom of the soul. This was the process of allowing the poison of what had come to pass to rise up within, to care for this energy with wild dancing, music, crying, wailing, in other embodiment until it emerged as medicine. It seems to me that these folks were in the long ago, but perhaps what I am imagining are the whispers of the ancestors yet to come. The ones who know that that what the underworld has to teach us about who we are and who we are becoming is essential. This is a book for those of you who are kin to these ancient future past ancestors. Those of you who are tired of ingesting the poison of avoidance, denial and spiritual bypass and are ready to delve into the deep dark territory of medicine making. This is a book for those of you who are hungry for more. Mm, brilliant what a great way to sum it all up yay <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much thank you michael and you can let people know the book is at gaia rising in nelson and i'm going to be doing a talk on april 29th as well so they can get in touch with me for details wonderful thank you so much yay thank you <laughs> bye We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.